If you would turn to the first of those portions that were read for us, Matthew chapter 21. I do appreciate the words of welcome again and, as I said this afternoon, the invitation initially to come over once again and to have the opportunity of ministering the Word of God. It's a, a pleasure on my part and when Mr. Tom's contacts me, I always try to uh, fit it in somewhere in the, the, the year schedule to come over because, as I say, it is a pleasure on my part and I'm, I'm glad to be here and I trust the Lord will bless his word uh, tonight. And can I add to his invitation for you to come over to Ulster? Uh, there's, there's an hotel just 100 metres from the church. Uh, if you wish to come over and stay, uh, you'd be uh, more than welcome to do so and we'll be glad to have you. It's something that we have thought about in our own congregation. Uh, one of my elders, um, it's a few years ago now that he first said to me that he would love to have a prophetic conference. And even on the format that we are proposing in that we have a more informal uh, meeting in the afternoon and the opportunity for people to ask questions. Because as you know, there's many people have questions and things just aren't clear in their own mind as to the order of things or the nature of things. So uh, it was thought, well, would it not be beneficial to have some of these men um, who are well versed in these matters and have spoken about them on many occasions uh, to have them because, um, as it's obvious, they're not going to be with us forever. So it would be very nice to have them along. So that's really where that idea came from. And we have spoken about it among ourselves in our own uh, session in our congregation. And then I talked to Mr. McMillan about it one time and he he thought it was a, a good idea as well. And then when the centenary came along as well, I said, well, would that not be a good time to to do something? Whether we keep it going on a yearly basis, I don't know, but we certainly are going to have it for the first time, God willing, come that first Saturday of uh, November. And then we'll have something to eat, and then we'll have the evening meeting uh, as a more uh, formal preaching service. And... Uh, we're facilitating it. I said that to Mr. McMillan and to Mr. Toms that I would prefer that uh, SGA took it on as their meeting and appointed the speakers and we've suggested the format and uh, Mr. Toms has done that and has contacted those men so Dr. Douglas has consented to come and Mr. Foster as well to preach at it and also to be there in uh, the afternoon. So um, I trust it will stir interest in our own congregation and other congregations as well, and that people will come uh, to those meetings that, that Saturday. And Mr. Tom's going to speak a little bit about the SJT as well on the afternoon, as uh, he already knows that. So <laughs> he, he is, he's, because it is the centenary, so he's, he's going to speak a little bit about that, and I'm sure he can mention some of the books as well, uh, the literature that will be available too. So we're looking forward to that, and uh, I trust the Lord will, will bless it in coming uh, days. So do remember us over in, in Ulster, there's, there are people, as I said, that, that elder in our own, my own congregation, um, he, we'd, he often speaks, we often have many a conversation about the end times and um, subjects, if we're travelling to presbytery meetings together or other meetings together, uh, oftentimes the conversation comes around to the coming again of the Lord. It's a wonderful subject and uh, there's, there's, there's some ladies as well who've been over here. Um, that's a few years ago now. I remember, I think it was the first time I spoke here. It was during July. We were coming back from holidays. We were in France on holidays and coming back. And I came here and I didn't expect them to arrive in through the door. I thought they would be wanting to get rid of you for a month. And they wouldn't be coming to listen to you again. But uh, they, they arrived over. So there's, there's people who do have an interest in uh, the things of God. And may that even grow and increase. And uh, we do pray the Lord's hand to be in uh, Mr. McMillan too. Uh, he he really has taken the lead in arranging those meetings, and that's very encouraging uh, that, that that was done. But the Lord is sovereign. The Lord has a purpose in all of these things. And we may not see why, or what the Lord is doing, uh, but this we do know. The Lord is working out something to his, own, to his own glory and to the furtherance of his cause. And may that even be so. And... 
more and more obvious. Okay, we better turn to the Word of God then and look at this particular subject. The Stone of Israel is the subject for this evening. Can we just bow briefly in prayer, please, and ask the Lord to come and bless us around his word. Our Heavenly Father, we thank thee for thy word that we have opened before us tonight. We praise thee that we have the opportunity of meditating in the scriptures of truth. And we pray that thou will bless thy word to our souls tonight, close us in with thyself, we ask of thee. We praise thee for our Lord Jesus Christ and all that he has done for us and all that he will yet do. We praise thee for the great purpose and plan of redemption and what that entails, O Lord. And we confess that we are only paddling in the shallows, Lord, and what we understand and what we know. And it is our prayer tonight that thou would take us a little further. And Lord, may we understand a little more. Open up thy word to us. Open up our hearts to thy word, we pray, and our minds and our understanding. Help us to see more clearly what it is that thou hast purposed to do. And may it rejoice our hearts, O Lord. May we fall at thy feet afresh to worship thee and in adoration of thee and all that thou hast done. We marvel at thy mercy toward us. Lord, we are unworthy, undeserving, wretched sinners. We are under condemnation and rightly so. And yet thou hast saved a people for thyself. And we thank thee tonight for what it is to be among the people of God, to be redeemed, to have that imputed righteousness, to know our sins forgiven. Thy word speaks of the blessedness of uh, that man whose sin is covered, whose iniquity is covered, whose sin is whose iniquity is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And O oh Lord, we pray that our hearts indeed might rejoice tonight as we are before thee. Do remember uh, our brother Macmillan. We pray for him. We commit him to thee. We pray that thou will touch him, Lord. We thank thee for preserving his life. And even those circumstances, Lord, cause us to rejoice in how that was brought about. And give him a speedy healing touch, we pray. And if thou would raise him up and strengthen him, we pray. And may in coming days he know the hand of the Lord upon him in a mighty way. So be with us now as we come to thy word. Give us help. Around it we ask, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. The temple in our Lord's day upon the earth was one of great beauty, one of much Jewish pride, and one that was characterized by the most magnificent of stones. You remember the question that was asked uh, of the, the Saviour in Mark chapter 13 and verse 1. See what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And those disciples of the Lord did take uh, great pride in the physical temple building. And because of those magnificent stones that were part of its structure. Now it's reckoned that some of those stones were uh, up to 30 foot in length, 18 feet in width and 12 feet in breadth. And if you want to do a conversion into metric, well you can, but that's the old imperial uh, measurements. They were magnificent stones and a feat of engineering must have been to get them into place. Uh, maybe something that couldn't even be done today with all the skills and mechanical means. But they were magnificent stones that went to make up the, the temple and the Jewish people took great uh, pride in it. That temple had stood for hundreds of years, but in the time of our, our Saviour, it had gone, undergone a, a great uh, major renovation. Herod had uh, commissioned, commanded work to be done. In John's Gospel, chapter 2, it tells us there in verse 20, it took 46 years to do that work. And that would have been over the time of the Saviour's birth and his incarnation as he came into this world. So there was this magnificent temple with these magnificent stones that were there and much uh, interest taken in them, even to the extent that the disciples wanted to point them out to the Lord and wanted the Lord Jesus to consider them. But instead of thinking about physical stones, the Lord would rather have Israel and his people generally to think about another stone. And this stone that is mentioned here in this portion of scripture from Matthew chapter 21 that was read for us there just a few moments ago. 
You have it there in verse 42. Jesus saith unto them, Did ye never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? The same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvellous in our eyes. And then if you just skip to verse 44, Whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Now the, the account in Luke drops out the, the middle verse there. Um, we have skipped over verse 43 and the account in Luke that was reading keeps those two verses together and keeps those statements alongside each other. But this is the stone that the Lord is drawing their attention to. The disciples wanted the Lord to look at physical stones. The Lord Jesus here is teaching here. Here is the stone that he would have us to consider and have those that were listening to him that day to have particular interest in. Not so much the fabulous, magnificent stones of the temple. But this stone that is spoken of here in the scriptures and also uh, one that is spoken of in the Old Testament scriptures. So the first thing I want you to consider here with regards to this stone of Israel that is mentioned here is its reference to Jesus Christ. It's reference to Jesus Christ. The Saviour is using these words to set forth his own claim to be the Messiah. He's establishing that this portion of scripture in the Old Testament is speaking about the Messiah and that he is the fulfillment of that particular portion and other portions as well of the Old Testament that have to do with this particular theme. Because it's it's prefaced there in verse 42 with those words, did ye never read in the scriptures? So he's taking them to the scriptures. He's taking them to the place where he wants to know, have you read the scriptures? Have you pondered these things? Have you come upon these particular thoughts in the Old Testament scriptures? And how important the word of God is. How important the reading of the word of God is. What insights are given to us if we read and meditate upon the word of God. And how much then we we miss out, how much do we lose if we are not those who are reading the word of God and meditating upon it and seeking to understand and learn what it has to say. It's like those two disciples on the Emmaus Road. They they are troubles, their their, uh, perplexity and even it would seem that they were giving up in despair and heading down the Emmaus Road back home. It came about as a lack of understanding of the scriptures. And only that the Saviour drew near on that particular uh, occasion and opened to those two disciples the scriptures and began to teach them about himself and about his resurrection. And particularly the point that his sufferings had to come before his glory. They would never have understood. They would have gone on home in despair and maybe left off following the Lord Jesus entirely. But the Lord in his mercy drew near to those two disciples and spoke to them, opened up the scriptures, beginning at Moses and the prophets, he taught to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. But their perplexity, their sadness, their despair, all everything that characterized them going down that uh, Emmaus road that day, all came about because they did not understand the scriptures. Even that, that terminology that the Lord said, uh, O fools and slow of heart. That's, that's a different word there that is used, for example, Matthew 23, where the Lord warned about using the word fool and warned us about calling somebody a fool. In Matthew 23, the word fool there has to do about, with conduct. And that's the one he was warning about. Be very careful when you use that word fool and don't call somebody a fool. But the word that the Savior used in Luke uh, 24 has to do with understanding, a lack of understanding. And that's what he was getting at. A lack of understanding on the part of those disciples brought them to despair, brought them to sadness. So much of our troubles, our our perplexity about the things of life can be explained away and set in their proper context if we but knew the scriptures more. And how important it is that we are those who do that very thing, read the scriptures and seek to meditate upon them. And here's the Saviour doing that very thing in Matthew twenty-one forty-two. He says to these Jews that he's speaking to that day, have you not read? Are you not aware of what it says? He's pointing them back to the scriptures. He's pointing them to what has already been said in the word of God. He wants to know, have you read this? Have you understood it? 
have you applied it? Do you know what it, what it is applicable to? Because it is applicable to the Messiah himself. Those words that he's referring to are taken from Psalm 118. That particular psalm. That's where the Lord was directing their, their thoughts. Verse 22 uh, is the verse in, in particular. But the Lord Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy about this stone that is mentioned here and quoted here. And there, there's much that the word of God has to say about that uh, particular stone, not only there in Psalm 118, but in other places as well. For example, in, in Isaiah 28, 16, you have God the Father and what he has to say about the stone in relation to the Messiah. Um, Isaiah twenty eight sixteen. Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. And there is brought in there the point that I, I've just been making, that if we understand the word of God and lean upon it and depend upon it, then we will not be troubled and we will not be perplexed. There's that phrase that comes at the end of that verse there, Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen: He that believeth shall not make haste. And it's interesting to notice how that verse is quoted uh, and even interpreted in the New Testament because it's quoted twice in the New Testament. Romans chapter 9 and verse 33, Paul quotes it and then he interprets the last little phrase there and he says, He that believeth shall not be ashamed. And then Peter in 1 Peter 2, 6 also quotes it and again, he interprets under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He interprets that last statement as well. And Peter in 1 Peter 2, 6 says, he that believeth shall not be confounded. So if you bring those three statements together, the one in Isaiah, he shall not make haste. What Paul says, he shall not be uh, ashamed. And what Peter says, he shall not be confounded. You've got that idea brought out again. That if we understand this and lean on what we understand from the word of God, will not be those who are ashamed then. Will not be those who are confounded. Will not be those who will have to make haste and flee because all of our hopes and expectations are coming crashing down and we have to flee. No, if we are those who understand the word and lean upon this stone and build upon this stone, that, that will never happen to us. But God the Father there is indicating to us the, the stone that he is going to lay in Zion as a foundation stone. It's a tried stone. It's uh, a tested stone. It's a precious cornerstone. And as we know, the Lord Jesus had, had indeed many testings. He was tested in the days of his flesh. The devil came and assailed him. We know his temptations, even towards the end of his ministry as well, as those hours were coming upon him in, in Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples that the, the prince of the world was coming and had nothing in him. And the devil was assaulting him and assailing him, but... He's, he's the tried and tested stone. He's the stone that will not, will not fail. The storms raged around uh, about Jesus Christ as the, as the stone, and, and they still do today. We think about the, the storms of modernism and liberalism and apostasy and infidelity and popery, and you can go on naming a whole lot of other things as well. They've all sealed this stone, and still, still it stands, still it is in place. It has never been moved. And those that are trusting on it will never be ashamed at all. Peter had confidence in this stone. And when you particularly think about all the suggestions that are made with regards to Peter being the foundation himself of the church, in Acts chapter 4 and verse 11, he indicates very clearly it's his explanation before the council as to why this uh, lame man has been healed. And Peter is not taking any of the glory at all, but he is giving all of the glory to the Lord. And in Acts 4 verse 10, he says, Be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you hold. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. So Peter has confidence in this stone and identifies this stone with Jesus Christ as well there that day in his defense of what had taken place with regards to the lame man. And we've already mentioned the fact that he does that also in his uh, epistle. 
The stone that is here mentioned is the stone that is cut out without hands. And you'll recognize that terminology from the book of Daniel chapter 2. And that uh, vision that Nebuchadnezzar had of the, the image and all the different parts to that image. And Daniel is the one who is given understanding in these things and he is able to uh, bring an explanation to uh, King Nebuchadnezzar and he has gone through all of those parts of the image, the, the gold head and applied it to Nebuchadnezzar, the Medes and Persians, the, the Grecians and the Romans and then he brings it down, verse 34, Daniel chapter 2 and verse 34. Then he comes down to these words, Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet, that were of iron and clay, and break them to pieces. Then was the iron and the clay and the brass and silver and the gold broken to pieces together, and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So the stone that is here before us is this stone cut out without hands. That's mentioned there in, in that vision that Nebuchadnezzar had and the explanation that Daniel gave for it. This is, this is the, the eternal rock of ages, to use further scripture language. Isaiah 26 and verses 3 and 4, I'm just suggesting these, we're not uh, dwelling on them at any length, but just to make it clear in our own mind as to the identity of this stone and its reference to Jesus Christ. Isaiah 26, 3 and 4, Thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Trust ye in the Lord forever, for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. And if you've got a margin in your Bible, you will understand that the phrase rock of ages is attached there to uh, those words in verse 4, where the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. He's the rock of ages. He's the rock that endures throughout all of the ages to come. He's never going to be moved. He's never going to be conquered. He's never going to be broken himself. Rather, we'll come to see that he's going to do the breaking of, of other individuals. So, the stone very much is, is identified with Jesus Christ. And here, when the Savior quotes these words, he's taking it upon himself and he's applying it to himself and he's wanting these uh, Jewish individuals to whom he's speaking, he says, oh, have you read this? Do you understand it? Do you know that this applies to the Messiah? This applies to me. And these things are being fulfilled in your before your very eyes. So you have the stone and its reference to Jesus Christ. Secondly, I want you to consider the stone and its rejection by many. Because this brings us more and more to think about what it is that is particularly said with respect to this stone. It's going to be rejected by many. There are, there are many who build. In fact, we could say every individual is building in some fashion. I, I think that's a, a fair enough statement to make in the light of the word of God, to say that everybody is building on something. And there are many who build, but they are not building on Jesus Christ. In fact, they have rejected this stone. They have rejected this as the foundation stone. Whether it's to attain salvation, whether it's to build up religious systems or organizations, there's one thing common to most, that there's many, many individuals who are not building on Jesus Christ. They are not heeding what the word of God says. For example, there in Isaiah 28, where it says, this is the foundation stone. And the suggestion is, well then, here needs to be the foundation of all of our hopes and all of our expectations we need to be building on this foundation. And yet there are many tonight who are not building. Oh, some claim to be building. Some take the name of Jesus Christ. But in reality, they are not building upon Jesus Christ. They're putting something in alongside him. Something that will never be a true foundation at all. They're not building on Jesus Christ. And as we know in the context here of both of these portions... These words are mentioned in connection with the parable that is mentioned there as well. Um, if Matthew 21 is open before you, beginning at verse 33, where the reading commenced, the Lord Jesus begins to teach this parable about the householder and how he planted the vineyard, hedged it about, planted the wine press, and 
and so on, then listed out to uh, these husbandmen, and then he, he sends his servants looking uh, for fruit and for the harvest. And they mistreat one after another, even beat them, stone them. Uh, and uh, that's important just to keep that thought in mind, because this picture you see about the stone is building up. It's not just in isolation that it suddenly appears when we get down to verse 42 about the stone. The thought of the stone is building up here because there's reference made, you see, to stoning there in verse uh, 35 of Matthew 21 where the husbandmen took his servants, beat one, killed another, stoned another. And then ultimately he sends his son thinking, they'll reverence my son, but they do the same to the son as they've done to all the servants. They, they don't want him and they kill him. And that's why the Lord Jesus then is quoting these words, because what he's saying to them and reminding them is you're not building on Jesus Christ. You're rejecting Jesus Christ. He's not the foundation of all of your hopes. You've rejected him and you've cast him, you've cast him aside. I, I had the great privilege of sitting under Mr. Douglas in Bible college. He was college principal and also he was lecturer in, home and, uh, in hermeneutics, uh, the lecturer in Hebrew, and he was the lecturer in biblical exegesis. And I counted the greatest privilege to have sat in his classes, uh, particularly in his Hebrew classes. And they, they, were, they were a joy. I don't know whether it was because I particularly liked languages, I don't know, but um, I particularly enjoyed his, his Hebrew classes. And many, many a simple lesson uh, he, he taught us about the, the not just learning the Hebrew language and being able to parse um, verbs and so on and, and work with sentences, translating. There was just little gems that he used to bring out every now and again. And you knew rightly, somebody, somebody could only know this by much study. By much study. And there's one that he brought out with regards to the stone. And if you take the word for stone in the Old Testament language... Um, and in Hebrew, there are weak letters. And if you drop out the weak letter out of the word for stone, you are left with the word ben. And you'll know that that's one of the Hebrew words for son. And the question is asked, well, which son did Israel reject? When it speaks here about the stone, which the builders rejected. And you can drop out the weak letters. So the question then stands, which son did, did Israel reject? Was it Isaac? Or, or Jacob? Or Moses? Or David? And you can go right down through all of those great and mighty men in Jewish history and ask the question, was it any of them that, that they rejected? No, it wasn't any of those individuals that they rejected. The individual that the Jews rejected was Jesus of Nazareth. That's the son they rejected. That's the son they didn't want anything to do with. And when he came teaching, and when he came preaching, and when he came claiming and proving that he was the Messiah, they didn't want to know. They rejected him. He was the son that they rejected. I don't, don't quote me on this, but I actually think that Mr. Douglas had that conversation as well with some guy, because as some of you know, Mr. Douglas takes, uh, over the years has taken a lot of trips to the land of Israel, and uh, as far as I know, somebody told me that in some discussion with a Jewish guide, he started this conversation and the Jewish guide was amazed that this Gentile would know anything about Hebrew and weak letters and dropping out weak letters and coming up with a word for son. He was absolutely amazed. But then he didn't know Mr. Douglas, uh, just as simple as that, uh, as the rest of us might know him. Because that's just the type of man that he was. But as far as I know, I, I was told anyway that, that he had that conversation with some, uh, some Jewish guide in the land of Israel on one of those trips. And he brought him to the place where he asked him the question, well, which son did the Jews reject? And there's no answer, you see. There's no answer. They didn't reject all those other individuals that I have listed. They rejected Jesus of Nazareth. They rejected Jesus of Nazareth. And he was rejected by the Jews and he is still being rejected by the many tonight. Whether it's modern Christendom and their unbelief and their denial of those great truths that relate to him and his virgin birth or his vicarious death or his bodily resurrection, his saving merits, his word, his law. There's a host of ways whereby they reject him and set him aside 
And it doesn't matter whether they take his name upon their lips in some other way. By their works they deny him. By their works they show that they have rejected this stone and they have set him aside. And he is the stone which the builders have rejected. And they've sought to build their schemes and they've sought to build their, their hopes and their expectations. But they're not, they're not built on Jesus Christ tonight. And that, that goes for, by and large, the vast majority of those in the world tonight. The many. The many. They're not building on Jesus Christ. Now there's those who, who stumble. If you, if you come and look at this verse uh, 44 for a moment. It says, whosoever shall fall on this, this stone shall be broken. There, there's some who, who trip over Jesus Christ, who trip over a stone, just the same way as you know, maybe somebody's out walking and their toe catches the, the, the stone on a cobbled path or whatever, or, or the curb, and, and over they go. They, they stumble over. They get tripped up by, by a stone. And there, there's some who, who get tripped up. You now listen to the words of Isaiah 8 and verse 15. It says, Many among them shall stumble and fall and be broken and be snared and be taken. Many shall stumble and fall. And that's true tonight. There's many who just, who just stumble. There's those who just cannot see. Sometimes it's, it's too simple. They, 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 want something, they want something more. Complex. They want something more than, than how they look upon Jesus Christ and they see no beauty in him that they should desire him. There, there's many who stumble. They just cannot see. And sometimes when you're doing outreach and seeking to engage in cons, uh, conversation with people, they're, they're, not, they're not outrightly opposed. They're not, they're not you know, atheistic in, in their, their language and... You know, aggressive against the, the, the people of God and against the cause of God and against you if you were speaking to them. They just, they just cannot see it. They stumble. There are those who just stumble. They just, they just can't see it. The, the, the light is not there. But then there, there's others who, who cast this stone down. As it's illustrated there in the parable. And that's what the Lord is here particularly applying to these, these Jews. They're not stumbling. They're willfully. Willfully and deliberately rejecting Jesus Christ. And the Lord is emphasizing. They've done it with the servants. It's not that Christ was the first they'd done it with. They'd done it with all the servants that the Lord had sent. All the prophets that they had sent. They'd, they'd turned against them all. And refused to believe their message. You take Isaiah. Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Those, those prophets were, were rejected. And the, the, the Jews or those who had been rejecting Christ and not building upon him for centuries down through their history. It wasn't just something that, that only came to, to light during the time when the, the Lord was here. It came to a climax in, in a certain state and a certain sense and uh, as we know, it will even continue on and reach its full uh, climax prior to his coming when they'll, they'll believe another Christ and follow another Christ. But the Lord is emphasizing here the point they were casting down the stone. They were having nothing to do with this stone uh, at all. How tragic. How tragic. That there are people who either stumble over the stone or those who willfully and deliberately cast the stone down. And it seems as if we live in a day when more and more people are doing that in our age. You know, I suppose, I'm sure it's over here as, as much as it is maybe more over here, but I, I think you can see a, a development in the reaction of people, generally speaking, to the gospel. There was a time many people were, were apathetic, but... People are moving away from being apathetic to being downright hostile now. Outrightly opposed to the gospel. Don't want to hear open air preaching. Don't want to hear it. Complain about it. Come out and give off when, when people are in the vicinity preaching. I think you can, you can see a development in the hostility that there is in, in people's hearts against the gospel and against Jesus Christ. They, they don't want them. They don't want to build on this stone. 
And more and more they're becoming hostile to it. The stone is rejected by many. One further thing I want you to consider here, and that is the stone and its rise to prominence. Because despite being rejected and set at naught, we are assured here in these words that this stone is going to become or has become the head of the corner. And that shows the utter foolishness of those who build for eternity without recognizing the importance of building on Christ and who do not have Christ as the foundation stone. How foolish, how utterly foolish, when there is this assurance that is given here that this stone, even though this is how it is treated, it's rejected by many, there's people who stumble, there's those who outrightly cast this stone down. It matters not, this stone is going to rise to prominence. This stone is going to become the head of the corner. And there's the following statement at the end of verse 42. This is the Lord's doing and it's marvellous in our eyes. The Lord is going to see to it that his own dear son is exalted. The Lord will see to that, that his own dear son is exalted. It matters not what men do with this stone. It matters not whether they reject it and cast it down and want nothing to do with it. Ultimately, there is coming a day when God the Father is going to show the world that Jesus Christ is indeed this stone. And it ought not to be rejected. And rather, it's going to rise to prominence. It tells us that Christ has made the chief cornerstone if uh, you look there at Matthew 21 42 the stone which the builders rejected the same has become the head of the corner the same has become the head of the corner this very same stone that was so treated as we have been outlining there is now going to be made the head of of the corner I think that is explained more fully in those words that you have in Philippians uh, chapter 2 where having traced the Lord's descent down from glory down to the humility of the cross, Paul then uh, describes his ascent back again to the place of of exaltation. In Philippians chapter 2, it starts there in uh, verse 6, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. And there are seven downward steps there to be followed through. And they bring down, bring us down to the place there at the end of verse 8, the death of the cross. Seven downward steps that brings Christ down to the depth of his humiliation where he dies on the cross in the fashion that he does. And then beginning at verse 9, there's seven upward steps It brings them right back to the place of exaltation. And that's what's partially here in view when we think about this stone being made the chief cornerstone. He's going to be exalted. And though that's the terminology there in Philippians chapter 2. We hardly need to read the verses. You know them, I'm sure, so well. But it tells us God has highly exalted him, given him a name above every name. The Lord has exalted him. Here's this stone that is rejected and so mistreated. But his father is going to make him the head of the corner, the chief cornerstone. And there it is explained to us in that particular statement or set of statements that are given there in uh, Philippians chapter 2. This stone is part of the, the exaltation is going to be the foundation of the church. Christ is the foundation stone. No other foundation can any man lay, the Bible says, than that which is laid. Christ is the foundation. Now the cornerstone in ancient buildings was very important. (coughs) They didn't have the mechanical means of digging down and excavating to uh, provide foundations in the fashion that we would do today if we were building. They, they, would, they would certainly excavate uh, somewhat, but not to the same extent as we would today because they certainly didn't have the, the mechanical means of doing it. What they did was they would excavate as much as was possible, but then they would, they would construct a building of very large stones at the bottom. The lower courses, particularly the, the lowest course, would have very large stones that would spread the weight of the building. And the cornerstone was even more significant when they were turning a corner. The, the cornerstone became all significant because of, the, of the, the weight of the building that would be on the cornerstone. It particularly, and oftentimes they were the biggest stones in ancient buildings. 
And there was a, a, a method in that, there was a purpose in that, because this was their means of spreading the weight of the building and carrying the building so that it would not sink. And they would put these massive stones at, at the corner of buildings. That was an ancient practice uh, for, for building. Well, Jesus Christ is that cornerstone. The church cannot be built. When we take, a, take the language of the Lord Jesus himself, where he says, I'll build my church. The church cannot be built unless it has Christ as its cornerstone. Whatever building there might be, whatever might claim to be Jesus Christ, if it's not built on Christ, it's going to collapse. It's going to come crashing down someday. If it's not built on Jesus Christ as the, the cornerstone. And again, if you turn over to Ephesians chapter 2, you have uh, some reference to this, this building that is being erected. And verse 19, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, he says, We're no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens of the saints and of the household of God. So he thinks here about, uh, about a house, and um, there, there's some steps here as he makes his way through this. And he's thinking about being brought in, what it is to be uh, among the people of God. And then verse 20, he, he, he brings in the thought about the building. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Well, we've already been thinking about that. But it's the next couple of verses I want you to think. In whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord. In whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Those, are those last two verses can only come about when Christ is the chief cornerstone. When the church is built on Christ, then all of these other stones can be built in. And it becomes the temple of the Lord. It becomes the habitation of God through the Spirit. So Christ is the foundation stone upon which the church is going to be built. Here is his rise to prominence. He's exalted by his father. He is given this honoured place. He's going to become the, the, the foundation stone. He's going to become the chief cornerstone. The corner is where two walls will meet in a building. And the cornerstone is going to underpin uh, those two walls where they meet. And we've explained a little bit about that and load bearing and so on. But surely there, there has to be a reference there to the Church of Christ in Old Testament and New Testament times coming together in Christ on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Just the same way as there in the book of the Revelation, the four and twenty elders are taken as a reference to uh, the representation of the Old Testament church and the New Testament church there. And those four and twenty elders, the elders are representative. Well, are the two walls coming together at the corner not, not representative of the Old Testament and New Testament saints coming together, one in Christ, part of this building? I, I, was, a, I was a joiner before I went into the Bible college. And you often used to watch some of the bricklayers that we worked alongside and how, how they built. They would build up the corners first. If you maybe some here and you know a little bit about building and construction. But the bricklayer would build up the corner of a building first. He would he would get out his plumb and he would build up the corner and make it make it plumb and establish the two corners and then he would he would string up his building line in between and then he would start to fill in all the courses in between. But he would only do that having established the corners of the building first of all. And is there not there even a, a, a lesson, an illustration of what it is that happens with regards to the church of Christ and building upon Christ the foundation stone? Every believer is described as a living stone that's built into this edifice, this habitation of God. But every, every stone that is built in between uh, those corners has to be built in taking and making recognition to the to the corners you know, sometimes 
whether it's block work or brick work, and the, the bricklayer's filling them in, well, he has maybe has to shorten some of the, the blocks or the bricks to get them to fit in. He, he's built up his corners. He has them all nicely squared and, and set up, and now he's filling in the courses. And sometimes he has to adjust the, the, the blocks or adjust the brick to filling in. But surely we can understand that lesson as it applies to ourselves. You see, our lives are regulated by the one who is the chief cornerstone. Our lives are regulated by Christ. We are those that he has saved and built in as living stones. But we're, we're not just little entities on our own. We're there in relation to the, cor- the chief cornerstone. We're there only because of Jesus Christ. And our lives are to be regulated by him. Our conduct in every part is to be regulated by him. By the one who is the chief cornerstone. And there has to be that adjusting of us in order to fit in with the chief cornerstone. It's not Christ who is made to conform to what we want. It's you and I who are made to conform to what Jesus Christ wants. And I'm sure you know it over here, as we only know it too well over in Ulster. There's this whole idea today about, you know, seeker-sensitive religion and the emphasis upon the worshipper and they must feel good and about where they worship. It's not a matter of what truth is preached or uh, what practices are engaged in the church. No, they, they must feel a certain way about a church before they'll commit to it or attend to it. The order is completely reversed. It's us adjusting to Christ, not Christ being adjusted to suit our whims and fancies. We are stones built in. Christ is the chief cornerstone. I better hasten to an end. That brings us, in thinking about this rise to prominence, to think about another aspect of it. Not only is there this rise to prominence that he becomes the foundation of the church, but if you look at verse 44 again here of Matthew 21, there is this rise to prominence is in that Christ is going to crush all who oppose him. You see, there's this verse in verse 44, these words, it says, Whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. And whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. If this exalted stone does not become the foundation stone of an individual's life, that stone is going to crush them. The foundation stone becomes a crushing stone here. In, in verse 44. I, I think that has reference to the Jewish form of capital punishment. Because I mentioned there, if you go back up to verse 35, this reference to them stoning the servants that were sent on to them. And that's, that was the Jewish form of capital punishment. Well, it's a bit of a gruesome subject, but you know, it wasn't just a matter of, of them taking up you know, a, a, a rock that would fit in your hand and, and throwing it at an individual. That's not how they stoned a person to death among the Jews. They would take a large stone, as I say, it's a little graphic, but they would take a large stone and they would drop it on an individual and crush that individual. Yes, there might be others then that would take stones and throw them on top of that individual, symbolically taking part in the, the, the execution. But they would put somebody to death by actually crushing them with a stone. And that's what is referred to here in, in verse 44, tying it in with what has been said further up there about how they dealt with the servants that came. They, they stoned some of them. They put them to death. They crushed them. Well, here it tells us now about this stone that's going to be exalted. And one of the ways in which he's going to be exalted is either he becomes the foundation for all of our hopes and we build on Christ or... If we are those who stumble and fall, this stone is going to crush us. And there in verse 44, he's, he's set out as the, as the crushing stone. Now if you go back to Daniel chapter 2, we can see the crushing stone there with regards to the empires of the world. And how that, that uh, great image was smitten by the stone. The stone smote it on its on its feet and the whole image comes crashing down. There's the stone as a crushing stone. He crushes the empires of the world. And as we know that that's going to happen someday. The empires of the world are going to be crushed by the Lord Jesus. The religious and political 
economic leaders of the world are going to be crushed beneath this stone. They are those who will stumble and who will fall. and Christ will become to them a rock of offense. And as we read in Revelation 6, the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men are going to flee. But that, that stone's going to crush them. Because Christ is going to come someday as the crushing stone. But what about the, the individual? We've thought about the empires of the world. We've thought about the great men of the world, the kings, the, the rich men, the captains. But what about right down to just the ordinary individual? Well, Revelation six, fifteen goes on to talk about every bondman, every free man. Every ordinary individual, if we want to put it like that. They're going to flee as well on that day when Christ comes as the crushing stone. And what a day of alarm uh, that will be for them. For many who will awaken in terror to the realization they have not been building on Christ. And now he's come to be a crushing stone. He's come to be a crushing stone. And as it says there in verse uh, 44, they, they'll be broken. Whosoever shall fall in the stone shall be broken. So this is the individual who, you know, who stumbles and Christ becomes a rock of offense and they fall over the stone. They're, go, they're going to be broken, it says. And then, on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. And there's this thought about the crushing stone, the judgment that comes with Christ coming. How it behoves men and women to be in Christ and to know what it is to be building on Christ so that they do not ever face this stone and meet him as a crushing stone. And may we rejoice tonight that we're in Christ, that we've been built in as one of those stones. And may the Lord make us truly thankful. May the Lord bless his word to our hearts this evening for his name's sake.